Hello and welcome to the New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network. My name is Christoph Odinitz. I am your host. Today with me is Professor Eric Durstauer, and we will be talking about his new book, In the Sultan's Realm, Two Venetian Reports on the Early Modern Ottoman Empire. Eric Durstauer is Professor of History at Brigham Young University. His research focuses on gender, religious identity, and food in the early modern Mediterranean. His publications include Venetians in Constantinople, Nation, Identity, and Coexistence in the Early Modern Mediterranean, Renegade Women, Gender, Identity, and Boundaries in the Early Modern Mediterranean, A Companion to Venetian History, and The Mediterranean World, From the Fall of Rome to the Rise of Napoleon, co-authored with Monique O'Connell, and in The Sultan's Realm, Two Venetian Ambassadorial Reports in the Early Modern Ottoman Empire. That's the book we're talking about today. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. So in this book, you are translator and editor of two reports, Orelazioni, by Lorenzo Bernardo and Ottaviano Bon, written in 1590 and 1609, and delivered in Venice upon their return from the chief diplomatic post of the day in Istanbul or Constantinople. So really, this book is a primary source rendered into English by you. And it's pretty short. It's about 150 pages. It's very easy to read. It's really delightful. It doesn't feel like a translation. It's it's smooth and uh, uh, perfectly fluent, and it and it's just a fun book. It's beautifully illustrated. It has a glossary of terms, and I think it would be a really nice thing to read for a, uh, in a European survey course or 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 a more focused seminar. Tell us a bit how you decided on the project and and what your goals were. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you for your uh, for the invitation to talk about the book and for your kind words uh, about it. Um, it is a book that has sort of been um, with me uh, for a number of years. An idea that I ha- that I had, um, you know, maybe t- got maybe ten years ago um, when I uh, started teaching a Mediterranean history course um, at Brigham Young University, and and was struck by sort of the shortage of primary source material, accessible primary source material for students to use in class. And so the objective with with the translation and the publication was uh, in part to make uh, make what I think are really interesting and um, and uh, provocative sources available to students uh, in the sorts of courses that you were suggesting, a Mediterranean survey course or uh, or even you know perhaps a, a world Civ course. Uh, but also, uh, I guess the secondary objective was to make um, these really uh, a selection of these really wonderful reports on the Ottoman Empire available to uh, to scholars uh, and students of uh, of the Mediterranean or of early modern Europe who um, who may not know Italian and therefore wouldn't have access to the the Italian originals, which were published. Uh, already in the in the mid nineteenth century, in a series of uh, volumes by Eugenio uh, Alberi, um, but you know are accessible only to people who to who who have uh, who have Italian. So that was kind of the the objective uh, of the project uh, that uh, that got me started um, with the translations. So. Um... That, that makes perfect sense. I wonder why you chose these two guys, and I think they fit really well together because it's 20 years apart. It's a, it's a similar world. You can understand 
also you can see a little bit of change. But you could have written, you could have picked five guys or ten guys or um, two different two different fellows. Why 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 uh, did you choose um, Bernardo and Bon? So I chose uh, these two individuals in part uh, because uh, I, in my own research, had crossed paths with them uh, repeatedly. I um, much of my own personal research is archival uh, and in diplomatic correspondence uh, in the Venetian State Archives. And so I had come across uh, the dispatches of both of these uh, individuals um, in the course of research for other projects. Um, I think they're both really perceptive observers. Um, and um, there, there are a lot of these uh, relazioni, a lot of these reports, as you said, that I could choose from, could have chosen from. Um, I, I just think that these two are in some ways um, representative, but in other ways sort of go beyond some of the the standard tropes that um, that exist within this genre of uh, of diplomatic writing. Uh, I did want to sort of chronologically uh, keep the focus narrow. I think there are some uh, some important uh, uh, continuities that exist in the period from, let's say, 1575 after the uh, the end of the Second War, the Holy League, with the famous Battle of Lepanto. Um, and the outbreak of the War of Candia uh, in 16, uh, around 1645. Uh, that's my sort of sweet spot in terms of my own research, and I wanted to focus there just because I thought I could say some things that that are relevant for that particular time period, but might not be uh, um, might not hold true for either the period before. Lepanto or the period after the outbreak of the War of Kansas. So I'd really like to ask you about those changes in that period, but first maybe tell us who were these fellows, what was their job, uh, explain to us their, uh, their, their reason for being there, and then also what the relazioni are at the end. Okay, sure. So uh, both Lorenzo Bernardo and Ottaviano Bon were uh, Venetian uh, patricians or nobles. They both uh, came from uh, very important families with deep uh, historical roots uh, in Venice. They were part of the uh, 2.5% of the total population of uh, Venice that was uh, part of this, um, this very elite uh, patrician class. Uh, as a result of their status, they... Uh, they and their families and other members of the patriciate um, had uh, dominated uh, political uh, positions within the Venetian, uh, the Venetian Republic, including um, almost all important diplomatic uh, positions, uh, ambassadors, uh, and so forth. In this case, they were both elected as um, what's called the bailo, which is a unique term. In, uh, in Venetian diplomatic history that relates specifically to what we would call the Venetian ambassador in Istanbul to the, uh, to the Ottoman Empire. Um, the ambassador uh, in, uh, in Istanbul was called the Bailo for historical reasons that trace back to, to the Byzantine period, actually, um, but also because 
this was a, probably the most important Venetian diplomatic posting that existed in the early modern period. The, the, the ambassador to Rome might be a close second, but I would say certainly in the in the 16th and in the 17th century, the Bailo uh, in uh, Bailo a Constantinopoli, as it was called in, um, in the Venetian records, the the ambassador, the, the Bailo in Istanbul was was the most important uh, diplomatic posting that a Venetian patrician could aspire to. They were elected by the Venetian Senate. Uh, the senators, uh, all of them patricians themselves, chose among their number their most accomplished uh, their most experienced and able um, peers to go and uh, represent Venice in this most sensitive and most important um, diplomatic post in Venice's relationship with the Ottoman Empire from really the first uh, part of the 16th century forward became uh, simply the most the most sensitive and, and the most important uh, relationship that Venice had in maintaining the peace, uh, maintaining peace with the Ottoman Empire and with the Ottoman sultans was the primary objective, political objective and diplomatic objective of, uh, of the Venetian Republic during this time period. So they always chose um, their most capable diplomats. And this is a real honor. This is sort of the, the culmination in many instances of a, of a long and storied um, political and diplomatic career um, for these uh, for these men. So both Bon and Bernardo um, were uh, were Venetian patricians and diplomats at the top of their game when they were sent to, when they were sent to this posting in Istanbul. Lasts for about two years. There's a constant sort of a turnover. Two to three years usually is about how long a bailo would remain in Istanbul. And their job was twofold, basically. They were responsible for uh, all sort of political and diplomatic um, interactions with uh, with the Ottoman port, um, with the Ottoman court, uh, we could say. Um, and they were responsible for all Venetian um, commercial um, activity in the Eastern Mediterranean from, uh, from Egypt uh, to uh, the throughout the Levant um, into the Greek islands, um, the, all of these areas, each of which had a, con, a Venetian consul uh, in uh, resident, all of them answered to and were under the direction of the Venetian Bailo in uh, in Istanbul, and so they had a really heavy burden, uh, an extensive staff that supported them. Um, and uh, and that's sort of that's that's uh, the, the broad sort of overview of the background of what uh, of what these guys were doing in uh, in Istanbul. There, um, the reports that I have translated and included in this volume are um, are reports that are given uh, that were given at the end of a diplomatic posting. Uh, after the two or three years that an ambassador spent uh, in Istanbul or Rome or wherever, it was expected that they would return to Venice and appear before their peers in the Senate and present these very long, detailed uh, relazioni or reports of their of their service in uh, in whatever court they had been assigned to. And, and this was a long tradition that dated back 
hundreds of years and became more formalized in the 16th uh, and 17th centuries. And this is really a, a moment for these these diplomats to shine in front of their peers, and, and those reports can then become a launching pad for the next uh, posting and the next assignment that they receive. Some of them, a few of them, even end up being elected as doge in no small part, probably as a result of their service in Istanbul. So um, so that's a little bit of background, I guess, uh, about uh, about both these men and, uh, and the report. And it, it, they do feel to me that they're, you know, in the oratory or performative aspect that they're 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 kind of entertaining and uh, they're, you know, they're trying to hold the attention of a lot of different kinds of people, some of whom might be very interested in commerce and politics, but others who just want to hear about the other part of the world. It's sort of a assembled um, Venetian government with all its different um, councils and chambers. And they're all it, almost like, you know, when we have a state of the union address or something that everybody's in the same room and um, how long would a, would it last an hour or uh, half an hour? How long would he, would the, fellow speak. Yeah, so you're exactly right. These are um these uh, these are not sort of uh spontaneous off the cuff uh, sorts of uh um uh, talks or presentations that these that these ambassadors give. These are highly uh detailed reports. Uh, they're full of information about uh, about trade, about military affairs, about uh, about political figures in in this case in Istanbul, um, the the ambassadors, the bylaws, uh, start writing these things and gathering notes while they're still serving. They're, the whole time they're there, they know that they're going to give this report, and so they're collecting information. Uh, and so these things are composed and are presented after they return to Venice. Sometimes several months after they return, uh, and they're long. Uh, the, Two that I present here are not necessarily among the longest. Octaviano Bonds is, comparatively speaking, a short one, but these these presentations can go on for hours, wow. sometimes three, four hours, which to us sounds mind-numbing. Um, <laughs> but uh, among contemporaries, these were you know, really important moments, especially when the bylo or the ambassadors from Constantinople or Istanbul presented their reports. The chambers uh, of the Palazzo Ducale were crammed full. Everybody who had a right to be there was there. People who were, didn't have a right to be there still tried to sneak in. We have reports of people climbing up onto the roof of the building and peeling back the lead plates of the roofing to peer in and to listen to these reports. So, so it was a big deal, uh, and people were really interested uh, and these things very quickly, uh, uh, clandestine uh, copies of these reports uh, very quickly started working their way out and circulating um, in the city. But there was a real market for them outside of the city as well. And so th- these reports, uh, some of them are published illegally. They're not supposed to be published. They're, they're sensitive, confidential government documents, but, but they start spreading pretty quickly. and and are published or manuscripts are reproduced of them. So it's a popular, popular literary form as, a, as well as a form of oratory in Venice in this period. Okay. So maybe next, would you please give us um, 
just a a idea of what is the political situation in the in the Mediterranean around the year 1600. Well, today, Venice is a city, but 400 years ago, it was an empire. And what what are um, Venice's Mediterranean possessions and interests, and what is the Ottoman Empire like? Because it's much bigger than you know a, a country of Turks. It is far flung and multicultural, as you make clear. So, would you tell us a bit about that world? Sure. So um, the Mediterranean um, in 1600 uh, is actually uh, in a period of relative um, tranquility is a too strong of a word to be sure because it's never a particularly tranquil space. But some of the uh, great power sorts of rivalries, let's say, that had characterized the 16th century um, uh, at the center of which was the Ottoman Empire. A number of those had sort of resolved themselves. Venice was uh, at peace with the Ottoman Empire, had been since 1573 when the Venetians uh, uh, made a separate peace with the Ottomans. There, as I said before, their primary diplomatic and political objective was to maintain what they called the bona pace, the good peace with the Ottoman sultans, and they would do almost anything um, to preserve that. So much so, in fact, that the Venetians were known as the Turks uh, courtesan, um, the Turks um, lover, basically, because uh, because of their willingness to uh, to basically do whatever it took to preserve the peace. So Venice is at peace with the Ottomans in 1600. The Habsburgs. Uh, after uh, decades of rivalry, uh, are uh, have, have uh, declared peace with uh, with the the Ottomans. Um, the French have a long-standing um, uh, relationship with the Ottoman Empire. Um, uh, signed capitulations around the time of the Venetian of the Venetian uh, peace in 1572, and so. At least in terms of of, of the, the big powers of the Mediterranean, uh, it's uh, it's a lull in some of those uh, some of those uh, rivalries. It is an age, though, uh, of uh, of corsairs and of slavery um, and sort of informal or extra um, political kinds of uh, of violence are uh, are quite widespread and growing during this uh, during this. Uh, this time period, um, politically, the Ottoman Empire is still the the, the real power, the big boy on the block. Um, uh, all uh, everything uh, runs through uh, Istanbul in one way or another. It's the largest city in the Mediterranean, one of the largest in the world. It's a political uh, and economic powerhouse, and so. Um, and so the center, I would say, of the Mediterranean really tilts heavily towards the eastern um, eastern side of the Mediterranean, to the Levant and to Istanbul in particular. Spain is perhaps a counterbalance of sorts, uh, certainly um, a rival uh, historically uh, of the Ottomans, at least during the 16th century. But as I said, that that had. Uh, kind of tapered off um, by the end of the, by 1600. Things are going to flare up as they do throughout this period. Um, but that's, uh, that's 
in, in broad sort of brushstrokes, um, kind of what uh, what the Mediterranean political landscape um, looks like uh, during this uh, during this time period. Um, and then uh, the Battle of Lepanto. You yeah. both of these fellows write about it, even though for um, Ottaviano Bon it's been fifty years since or forty years since it happened. And what did that do? Did that change things? And I want to ask you uh, a political question: Is Spain in the ascendancy uh, at this moment, and does it feel, or does it feel it is? Because I think both of these ambassadors say, you know, make sure that um, the the Serene Republic needs to be allies with the Christian Majesty of Spain, and um, they both make the the joke. I don't know if it's a joke, but they they both make the stab at. Um, the Ottoman Empire, that they are only allies with France, which at the moment has terrible religious civil wars, only to annoy the Spaniards. So I, I kind of want to see this. I'm, I'm also a historian of Spain, so perhaps it's unfair, but I feel Spain, who is in the oceans and getting bigger and bigger ships and bigger and bigger guns, uh, is is on it's is on the rise. Do you not think that's? Do you think I'm wrong there? Uh, I don't think you're wrong. It's it's a tricky time. I mean, it's an interesting time. The period after uh, Lepanto, uh, of course, this famous battle uh, is um, is celebrated throughout Christendom. It's this moment, um, or, or is perceived at the time as this moment uh, in which the Christian forces, led by uh, uh, by the Spanish and Don, uh, Don Juan of uh, Austria, um, are uh, turn back the tide uh, of the Ottoman uh, advance. Uh, and there had been this sense for at least a hundred years and, and certainly more really that the, that the Ottomans were slowly but surely extending their, uh, their control over the Eastern Mediterranean and penetrating now into Central Europe, into, uh, into continental Europe. Uh, and, and nobody was successful in sort of slowing that. And so Lepanto becomes sort of this really symbolic moment that is read or is presented at least as being the turning of the tide. The reality, of course, is, is much more complex than that. Uh, the uh, Ottoman Sultan, uh, Selim uh, II, famously says uh, that, the, you know, that the Christians have singed his beard um, and he uh, he's uh, able to, in incredibly short order, reconstruct uh, his fleet uh, and put a, a very powerful fleet back into the Mediterranean uh, soon after Lepanto ends. And the whole Holy League itself falls apart, uh, is falling apart actually at the moment of the battle because Venice doesn't want to fight the Ottomans and wants uh, to get out. Uh, the papacy is... You know, politically, it certainly has political influence, but militarily is not a power player in the Mediterranean. The Spanish um, are certainly interested in what's uh, playing out in the Eastern Mediterranean, but they have uh, serious issues uh, in in the Western Mediterranean, and of course in their expanding um, global empire. And so. Lepanto kind of happens, and then and then things sort of settle down really quickly, at least in terms of maritime um, conflict. Um, 
and uh, and and I think all of the powers uh, or, or the three major powers, Spain, uh, the Venetians, uh, and the Ottomans, and and France, to a secondary degree, I think at least in the Mediterranean is, is a player in this as well. But they you know they have their own issues, as you pointed out, with the, the wars of religion going on. Everybody sort of checks out and kind of moves or, or redirects their attention. Um, elsewhere, and so there's a bit of a, I would say, uh, a military void or a naval void, may, maybe more particularly, that develops in the Mediterranean in this time period. And what we see coming in to fill this um, is the rise of corsair um, warfare, um, uh, which is going to uh, characterize uh, Mediterranean. Um, maritime relations for a good century or more, but the re- you know, sort of the, a, a real heyday and hot moment uh, in this in this relationship uh, occurs right around 1600, um, and, uh, and and of course corsairs are not pirates in the sense that uh, those of those you know, raised on the pirates of the Caribbean think of, of pirates. Most of them are uh, state agents uh, working for uh, for uh, governments. Um, though there are privateers as well that are out there, but they're really, I think, the big story, at least in terms of of maritime conflict in this time period. In terms of your question about Spain, yeah. I, you know, I think plain, Spain is definitely a, 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 a player, especially in the Western Mediterranean. Uh, in terms uh, in in this uh, in this uh, corsair-centered maritime uh, conflict, and you can correct me if if I'm wrong, but my impression has always been that uh, that uh, that Spain has um, a lot of other things uh, on its plate, and the and the kings of Spain are really more caught up with what's going on in the Low Countries, um, in the Netherlands, um, also with uh, with England. Uh, uh, and the French, uh, but also just this vast global empire that they're trying to to deal with, and so they're not as present really uh, in uh, in the post Lepanto period um, uh, as they were prior to that uh, to that time period. That's my reading about it, least. No, I, I think that's I think that's true, and um, I, I like what you said about corsairs um, because that that always amazes me and makes it hard. I think it's hard for us to imagine. We think of these big empires. We talk about the Spanish Empire and an Ottoman Empire, but really, that southern coast of Spain and the coast of Italy was always under attack. And uh, there's a book by um, Robert Davis who says that a million people were taken uh, into slavery in both directions, with um, uh, uh, as galley slaves or, or you know, Miguel de Cervantes, who wrote Don Quixote, spent five years in Algiers uh, and wrote. Uh, plays about his time in slavery and being taken, you know, to be chained to the oar and just entire villages uh, off the coast of Italy. Um, so a big economy was to ransom slaves and and so on. Uh, and yeah. uh, it, you you write a bit about uh, renegades also. So I say say more about that because that's that's a thing and and that lasted for another two hundred years as Thomas Jefferson sent the Marines to Tripoli as we still have in the song, yeah. you know, to fight the Barbary Coast. Pirates. So maybe tell us about that. That we think of these as big empires, but there's a lot of chaos in in, in that period. 
Absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And and looking back from a contemporary sort of a perspective, we, we have, I think, this tendency to try to, pro- to project uh, the power uh, and, and, and reach of our own contemporary uh, polities back onto the early modern period, which is a serious uh, error. Um, when we talk about these great empires, uh, they are um, they just there's not a comparison with uh, with contemporary sort of polities with uh, you know, totalitarian regimes or rulers of uh, of the 20th century. There's just no comparison. These are what uh, what the historians describe as composite states, which is sort of bits and pieces of a puzzle that are you know linked together pretty loosely. Uh, in many instances, the the, the breadth of these uh, early modern empires, even within the Mediterranean, not even speaking of Spain's global empire, but even within the Mediterranean, uh, these these rulers struggle to project their their power and their rule and to uh, impose sort of a, a centralized um, type of uh, of agenda, let's say. Uh, uh, over their own empire, and the Ottomans certainly struggle with this uh, significantly. They they are the nominal lords of uh, the Barbary Coast, North African uh, regencies, but in practice, those um, those uh, the 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 bays that uh, that uh, govern these various uh, regions, Tunisia, Algeria, and so forth, uh, have a lot of independence and are kind of Playing their own game and are only nominally, uh, only nominally uh, uh, subservient to or uh, under the direction, direct uh, control of uh, of the Ottoman of the Ottoman sultans. And so this is again that sort of void into which corsairs um, uh, enter in and, and play uh, play a really important role, as you were saying before. They, their impact on the Mediterranean um, in this time period is is profound, and the, and the memory of this these several centuries of, of corsairing and slaving uh, those those memories echo to this day in many of the coastal and uh, and island cultures um, of the Mediterranean. Big business, uh, and that's uh, what the the Barbary uh, regencies are uh, in it for largely is this trade in, in human flesh. Huge debate about the numbers. Davis uh, throws out uh, that that uh, that number of a million. Um, others say that's too high. Others say that's too low. I've seen I've seen estimates that push uh, towards five million or three million, maybe conservatively, in a two to three hundred year period. So slavery and, and slave trading is, is a huge part of the early modern sort of Mediterranean experience. And few people would not uh, uh, be related to or know someone who is either a slave or has a family member who's a slave. Um, and there are whole mechanisms that develop to, to buy the freedom of uh, individuals. You know, they could be influential uh, wealthy merchants or simple fishermen or farmers, uh, men and women, children who are captured in these recurring sort of uh, 
razzias or raids that, uh, that just spread throughout the Mediterranean from east to west. That I would like to ask you more about that. Uh, the sure. idea of slavery for a Venetian in, uh, in this period, That's uh, that word has come up a lot in both of these relazioni, and uh, especially the second one by Ottaviano Bon. He begins by saying everyone... Every single person in the Ottoman Empire is a slave, and that seems an important idea to him. And yet we also know that um, slavery was very common in Europe. Genoa, so close to Venice, is the biggest slave trading city in um, in Europe. And in fact, I've seen one one history of Genoa where they say, well, remember, Christopher Columbus is a, is a Genoese explorer. So when he decides to enslave Indians, he's just, he's just doing what he knew. And, and we like to think of slavery as this, well, not we, but... Some people consider this a strange, alien, modern invention of the new world, but but not so. It's been part of this European Mediterranean world uh, since since the beginning. Um, so, For sure. but but even so, the the Venetians consider Ottomans especially enslaved, partly because of this um, remarkable system of levy, where the sultan gets people in tribute to become um, his his officers in every kind of way. Maybe you could explain what this is, um, this, this tax system, which uh, you sure. call um, haras, I think, or haraj. Um, ex- explain what that is, and, and also how does it live in the Venetian imagination? So that's uh, that's a really good point that you bring up. And this is, this is a really important point that the Venetians um, make uh, repeatedly in, in all of the relazioni, not just bone. Or Bernardo. This is one of the ways in which they distinguish the Ottoman Empire from, for them, the, the Venetian Republic, or, or uh, from other European Christian, um, as they would characterize them, uh, powers. Um, the Ottoman Empire is a despotism. Uh, it's a, a tyranny uh, that's based on uh, on enslavement. Uh, and the officials, and, and, and what Bond is especially underlining here is that is that his his um, equals within the Ottoman Empire, the the political um, officials that he dealt with in uh, in the Ottoman port, that they were all um, a result of the of the um, child levy, the debshirma, as it's called. Uh, which was a way that the uh, that the uh, Ottoman sultans, for a couple of centuries, um, a, a way that they um, staffed, I guess we might say, their uh, the political structure, uh, but also the military. It's a way uh, in which they um, interact with and link themselves. I think you can say to uh, to uh, the areas, the Christian areas, particular of the Balkans that they uh, they conquered, and, and so I mean, what the Devshirma is briefly is um, is this what, what we might describe as a child levy, and so as part of the taxation that uh, Christian communities um, uh, of the Balkans um, part of uh, of what they have to pay to um, to their Ottoman overlords is taxes in a, in a more traditional sort of a sense of cash or crops, something like that. But occasionally there is um, 
a, a taxation, a human taxation, basically, in which young people, boys and girls from each village, a certain number of them are, are uh, pressed into Ottoman service. They're collected and taken to Istanbul, uh, where they enter into the, into the palace um, of the sultans and receive uh, an education and training. Um, they are uh, converted um, to uh, Islam, and they become sort of the, um, the Ottoman elite. It's from this, um, from the Deb Sherma boys and girls, that the most influential and powerful members of the Ottoman harem, in the case of women, but uh, the Ottoman state uh, and military are drawn. Um, and that happens uh, throughout the 16th and into the 17th century. It really kind of tapers off in the 17th century, um, by the mid-17th century in large part because um, the uh, Turkish uh, in, uh, subjects of the, of the sultans are jealous of, uh, of this unique access that, uh, that Christian um, Balkan Christian children have to the to the very highest sort of levels of power and influence and wealth in the Ottoman Empire. Legally, only non-Turkish um, uh, children were supposed to have access to be able to be part of this Devshirma. Um, and uh, over time, uh, Turks, ethnic Turks, sort of start to. Uh, elbowing their way into this uh, so that by the mid-17th century, really, the Desharma of Christian Balkan uh, children kind of dies off and the process becomes more centered on on uh, ethnic Turkish um, uh, elements of the empire, which to us seems kind of weird. Why would you, why, why would people be competing to have their children enslaved? And I think that's that's where it sort of gets really interesting because what we have to understand is that if yes, technically, as Bone says, these his counterpart, the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire, the second most powerful figure in the empire, probably is a slave of the Sultan who was taken from his Christian parents thirty or forty years before and taken to Istanbul. That in fact that. Uh, that uh, that slave of the sultan is uh, is a wealthy, powerful, influential uh, figure who has is unlike any sort of slave that we might think of, you know, rowing on a galley or working in a field or something like that. Uh, and this is why both Christian um, uh, and Muslim parents oftentimes compete to get their children selected to be part of the Deb Sherma. Rather than running away and hiding them, many of them are positioning themselves and trying to ensure that their children are selected so that they can become, so that they can enter into this incredible um, career path, this opportunity that's opened up to them that could see them rise to the very heights of the Ottoman Empire. And the families, of course, benefit directly from having these children in such uh, elevated uh, positions. So it's a different kind of a slavery. Technically, is a slave. Uh, technically, they are slaves, as Bone says, but they're they're his equals um, uh, in the most powerful uh, empire 
uh, in the Mediterranean in this time period. So the Venetians like to make this distinction uh, between their free um, patriciate uh, and the slave uh, servants of the sultan. But what that really means in practical terms is something, I think, quite different than, than what we might think. I think that's a really good point. And I was astounded by Bernardo, who, who described the corruption of the Shirma by the native Turks who would give their own children. But now that you say, that doesn't mean that they'll never see those kids again, because once you have arrived and you are somebody of a position of influence, then you can go back home and you know, visit your elderly mother and build a mosque and, or endow a, yeah. a village. Yeah. Uh, okay, so there's a positive side to this too, which is that everywhere in Europe, not everywhere, I'm sorry, that's not true, because I, I know it's different in Poland and maybe it's different in some other places, but most places have one religion only and uh, wars of religion to sort it out. And um, and where people get along, it's, it's a patchwork. Um, but, you know, obviously Spain was completely Catholic and they had no... Uh, witches and then parts of Germany were completely or Switzerland you know completely Protestant and they would persecute each other and so on there the Jews were expelled from many places in uh, in Europe but here's a place where not only are uh, Christians taken and enslaved and probably converted but there are also minorities um, living in a very cosmopolitan Istanbul uh, including Venice and Florence and Genoa and so on um, say a bit about what it's like to be a uh, a Christian representative, uh, you know, a, a Catholic Venetian in Istanbul. And um, f- some of the funny things we see here are uh, where uh, Bon talks about how some of the women of the of the uh, Seraglio or the harem would um, conspire with Jewish women in the town to, um, I don't know, acquire lovers or sneak out or whatever it was. But there there is this interplay in different roles for people of different religions. How did that work? What was the attitude? And is this one very, I, well, I don't know if we would call it inclusive or progressive, but it's different than what we see in a, in a, in a religiously rigid Western Europe. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a great question and, uh, and actually was kind of the focal point of my, uh, of my first book, which grew out of my doctoral dissertation, which, which um, focused in on the Venetian uh, diplomatic and commercial community in uh, Istanbul, in this time period that Bon and Bernardo uh, are are uh, serving in Istanbul, basically from Lepanto to the War of Candia, and uh, and that and that was really what uh, what intrigued me about uh, this about this community was uh, the way in which um, Christian. Latin Rite, uh, you know, we would say Roman Catholic uh, uh, people like uh, these ambassadors, these bylaws, but also their households and the merchants, sort of how that uh, on the ground, how those uh, relationships played out in the, the, the center, really, of, uh, of the Ottoman Empire. And um, I, mean, you know, I think we can say the center of the Islamic world in, the, in, this, uh, in this time period. Um, and, uh, and you're exactly right. The Ottoman Empire is what we would today describe in the term that is certainly anachronistic for the early modern period, but a, a multicultural sort of uh, an empire. The, the, the Ottoman sultans did not have a, an explicit policy of conversion uh, when they conquered uh, 
areas like Hungary or the Balkans or you know, the Greek islands. There was no concerted uh, effort to forcibly convert um, Christians or Jews or uh, you know, others. Um, the, there certainly are conversions, and there sometimes are forcible conversions, but that's not. Uh, that I think those are exceptional rather than the rule. And so what you have is this vast empire that uh, in which Muslim sultans rule over uh, large uh, numbers of, of particularly uh, Christians of various different stripes and of uh, and of Jews. And um, and that uh, that relationship can be fraught, but usually works. I think it's fair to say reasonably well. As an, a minor, a religious minority in the Ottoman Empire, you uh, are subject to a special tax, the haraj, uh, which is a tax that non-Muslims pay. Uh, and so it's not a it's not a this sort of egalitarian, utopian sort of world in which religion doesn't matter. Uh, there are certainly benefits to being a Muslim uh, in the empire um, and drawbacks to being a non-Muslim. But uh, it, it ends up being a place that, comparatively speaking, uh, particularly compared to uh, Christendom and to Western Europe, uh, is much more welcoming, uh, welcoming of religious heterodoxy, which is one of the reasons that we see uh, large numbers of uh, religious refugees, particularly from the Iberian Peninsula, um, moving into Ottoman lands, uh, whether they be um, Jews, conversos, or uh, uh, Moors who... Uh, had converted to Christianity, forced, been forcibly converted to Christianity, the so-called Moriscos, um, but even Christians from uh, from Italy and um, and Central Europe and uh, other areas are moving in in significant numbers into the Ottoman Empire because of opportunity, uh, because of uh, seeking a freedom from persecution in some instances, um, depending on where they're coming from. Uh, and it's a fairly, again, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think it's a fairly welcoming and open sort of uh, sort of a of a place for uh, religiously diverse uh, for people coming from from more uh, homogenous um, religious environments in which there's a, a, a resistance to religious um, heterodoxy. And so that so Bowen and Bernardo are, are transported into this uh, the capital of this this very diverse um, empire, and they're living in uh, in a particularly diverse section of the the huge city of Istanbul, where they're surrounded by Jews and, and Greek Orthodox and Latin Rite Christians and um, and Muslims. Um, and uh, you know, Russian Orthodox people from all over, really, um, who are living together, interacting together, trading together, sleeping together, um, you know, doing all the things that you would expect in a in a, in a religiously, culturally sort of uh, heterodox, um, richly heterodox sort of a, of a setting. I'll ask you one question, which might be a silly question, and if you want to, we can skip it. But I was wondering if you saw the 
a Turkish uh, soap opera, or really telenovela called Magnificent Century, which follows the um, kidnapped um, Russian girl who goes to the harem and ends up being empress of all the Ottoman Empire, Roxolana, uh, during um, the reign of Suleiman, um, and really shows uh, the way it is mem- these things, slavery, multiculturalism, uh, is remembered in sort of an idealized way. And I, I bring it up because that show got like 300 million viewers or something like that and um, about 10 years ago or maybe a little less. Yeah, I mean, it was hugely popular, right? It's a, kind of a cultural phenomenon, certainly in Turkey, uh, but was uh, translated and exported you know, well beyond uh, the Turkish borders. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really, really interesting program on a number of different levels. Um, it's, I, I, you know, I think it's interesting and it has to be understood in sort of the cultural and political context of, uh, of the Erdogan, uh, era in Turkey. Um, you know, because for the first, uh, 75, um, you know, 80, maybe even 90 years of Turkish Republican history, the Ottoman Empire was something to be avoided, to be ignored, to be forgotten. Um, and, and Ataturk, among the many sorts of, of reforms and changes uh, he brought about, you know, part of it was just kind of trying to efface that, that history uh, of the Ottoman Empire and, and replace it with a new Turkish nationalist sort of uh, of reality. And so the multiculturalism of the Ottoman Empire was something that was unattractive and 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 and, and, and to be ignored. Um, you know, when Erdogan comes uh, to power and Turkey begins sort of asserting a, a, a regional role uh, in areas that had previously been ruled by the, uh, the Ottoman Empire, there's sort of this uh, rediscovery of the Ottomans and and this um, this attempt to sort of reform um, the memory of uh, of the Ottoman Empire, um, uh, recalibrate it in some ways, uh, and and make it a useful history for the way that uh, Turkey under Erdogan sort of sees itself um, in the 21st century. And so, so you know that uh, magnificent century that 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 program is. Is I think definitely part of kind of the Turks themselves rediscovering uh, uh, and reconciling themselves with their uh, with the Ottoman past. And there's been a surge not only in kind of popular interest in the Ottoman Empire, but scholarly interest as well. And a lot of government money poured into conferences and publications um, um, about uh, the Ottoman era that. That wouldn't have been the case uh, for most of the of the Republican period. So it's just an interesting sort of an example of the way in which history um, uh, matters uh, profoundly um, in in a contemporary society like uh, like uh, Turkey, and the ways in which it's distorted, transformed, rediscovered, reformed um, as a as part of a sort of a political agenda. And there's a, there's a, a, a sort of a Western trope of the decadent Oriental uh, despot 
right? And we have that. We see that a lot, especially at this time in Spain. But um, uh, the first of these two writers, Bernardo, really says that um, the, the Sultan, who is uh, Murad, Murad III, is a decadent, lascivious guy raised in the Seraglio, surrounded by women and inexperienced um, uh, cohorts and so on. And, and But the f- second fellow, Bond, says that the successor, uh, Ahmed I, is not like that at all. But uh, that TV show, you know, it's a lot about sex. And um, what do you think about the, the Venetian view of um, maybe decadence or, or so on? And what do you think about the Turkish view of that? And I know that Venice also had some ridiculous number of prostitutes at, uh, at this period, something I remember from my undergraduate studies. And um, how does se- you're a gender historian, so I ask you, how does sex play in this, in this uh, um, dialectic? For sure, I, I, it definitely is um, is uh, a part of the conversation. Um, I'm I, I've been working on one of my little side projects. Actually, is uh, a, a, a short a little book entitled Mediterranean Vice, which is about um, sort of uh, sex and um, uh, an intimate relationships in the early modern Mediterranean that sort of transcends these political and religious uh, boundaries. But there's no question that uh, that in in the early modern uh, period, not only in Venice, but throughout um, uh, Christendom, European, Europe, whatever that means in this, in this time period, that there's this fascination with the Ottoman Empire. And, and, and a lot of it is sort of a fascination with the sexuality of the Ottoman rulers, the sultans, and the the famous harem, um, which uh, everybody, every traveler who passes through Istanbul has a lot to say about the harem, even though none of them can gain entrance to them. One exception um, uh, is Ottaviano Bon, who writes a very famous, uh, influential description of the seraglio of the uh, of the harem. Because he is one of the few who is able to gain access when the sultan is is in the countryside hunting uh, and the court is with him, a friend slips him in through the back door and lets him look around, which is something that almost nobody uh, experiences, um, uh, though everybody writes uh, writes about it. So there is you know, part of what you do to make uh, the sultan sort of these oriental despots is to is to. Uh, assign to them some sort of perverse and, and non-normative kind of sexuality, um, and uh, and and the harem is sort of uh, very ripe kind of a terrain for for developing all sorts of, uh, of lascivious um, stories about uh, about what uh, you know what's going on uh, in the uh, in the empire, and, and one of the ways that uh, that. Uh, Bernardo and Bon and other Venetians sort of uh, emphasize kind of the corruption uh, as they see it of uh, of the empire, uh, and uh, it is to uh, talk about sort of the, the, the lasciviousness of the sultans and their uh, uncontrolled sort of sexuality. Um, they also talk a lot about the influence of the women of the harem on the sultans, which is, of course, universally coded as being negative, not only by European observers, but by Ottoman observers as well. Mustafa Ali, uh, the famous 
uh, a famous Ottoman official um, of this time period, a contemporary of, of Bernardo and Bon. Um, he decries uh, extensively the so-called sultanate of the women, the influence of women, um, and the kind of the feminization of the uh, empire um, uh, as the women in the harem come to assert uh, increasingly powerful um, political role. Um, uh, Leslie Pierce wrote an incredibly influential uh, and important uh, book uh, about the imperial harem that uh, that I would uh, recommend to to any of uh, any of your readers, uh, the imperial harem, uh, which talks about this and kind of debunks a lot of these uh, a lot of these myths associated with the harem. But there's no question that there's a, a tremendous amount of fascination um, about about the harem itself, and a lot of people uh, are are writing uh, writing about it. Okay, wonderful. One thing I really want to ask about before we finish is diplomacy, because this, these are two early modern diplomats who have thought about it their whole career. And Bernardo especially describes it so beautifully as a game of the glass ball, where you want to throw it as hard enough, but not too hard. And then he really gives um, a magisterial explanation of gift giving and how to do it and how not to do it. Would you like to comment what, what we learn about the process of diplomacy and the, uh, uh, the the network building and 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 all of that the the machine of the state you know the, per, the human machine of the state how how what we learn from from these and all the other ones I'm sure you've read that that I have not yeah uh, so that is uh, I think definitely one of the uh, one of the valuable insights that these these translations of these uh, relazioni provide with, uh, to us. Um, is, is kind of the mechanism, the mechanics, uh, how early modern diplomats do diplomacy, how they how they treat uh, and and, uh, and accomplish their objectives um, as diplomats. These uh, relazioni are really, I think, useful in helping us to get uh, kind of a, a a focused snapshot of how that works. If you have you know, 10 years of time and you can read uh, Italian, difficult Italian chancellery handwriting from this time period, you can go and read the dispatches in the Venetian State Archive that go into great detail about this. But the, the, these relazioni kind of give us a nice summary and an overview of how uh, of how you do diplomacy. Um, and, and, and I think they're especially useful, too, um, uh, in illustrating how somebody some a state like uh, the Venetian Empire, which is clearly weaker than the Ottoman Empire, and the Venetians know that they understand that and have understood understood this for a, by the time of Ottaviano Bona, a hundred years they've known this. How 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 is a weaker sort of a, a polity? Do you uh, do you deal with a much more powerful, influential neighbor who can benefit you tremendously, but also cause uh, tremendous problems and difficulties for you if uh, if the relationship breaks down. And so the the, uh, the the reports are all about sort of navigating that and the process of, of maintaining that relationship. So part of it is, um, as you mentioned, giving gifts. Uh, that's really important um, in any sort of diplomatic um, relationship, but is especially important in the Ottoman Empire, where gifts 
are a mark of, uh, are, are a key component of a relationship and they're a means in which inferiors acknowledge their inferiority by making a gift to the, the more powerful member of the relationship. But, but there's a reciprocal gift that's given back uh, as well. And so gift giving is huge. Uh, and Bernardo hates it. He thinks that this is, um, that Venice is investing too much money in giving gifts and that they're being you know, kind of uh, shaken down, basically extorted, forced to pay these gifts, very rich gifts of foods and um, beautiful cloths and glass objects and other sort of luxuries from, from, um, from Venice. And um, that they're, they're basically paying protection money is, is what he's arguing. He says, you get no respect. If everybody knows that you'll just, you know, hand them over a gift and that we should be much more, he says, we should be much more parsimonious in our gift giving. It's a nice idea. It's totally impractical. And, in, and not even he follows his own advice. He, simply to do business in the, in, in the Ottoman Empire, you've got to give gifts and valuable ones. And to a lot of people, not just the sultan. Another way that they, they do this uh, is that they keep an open table at the embassy. The, the Venetian embassy, the pilot, as it's called, um, has, uh, has an open table policy. And so people come from throughout the community. Lots of Ottoman officials come and eat and drink with the, the, Ottoman, with the Venetian bylaws. They have the right to import a certain quantity of wine into the city, and that's makes the embassies attractive. It's a place to get a good drink. And so by having an open table, the the, the, the Venetian ambassadors are able to keep uh, their thumb on the pulse, their ear to the ground of what's going on. And they learn a lot of stuff uh, over the dinner table from uh, dinner guests. Uh, and these are people that they've established relationships with through giving gifts and providing food. Uh, the Venetian ambassadors themselves also pay house calls, go and visit and uh, and converse and talk politics, talk philosophy, uh, play games sometimes um, with their Ottoman counterparts. Um, so, you know, there are just a, 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 a wide range of ways in uh, which you do diplomacy, practice diplomacy that come through, in, I think, in both of these reports. A lot of it kind of fits easily into uh, what scholars call the new diplomatic history, which you, of course, with your own work are very familiar with, which is this non-official, you know, not just states representing um, themselves with ambassadors and, and dealing with each other on a formal kind of a political level, which the, the, the Bailey definitely do, but the more informal sort of uh, types, uh, types of relationships that exist between um, uh, individuals um, uh, that are you know, built around um, gift giving and um, entertaining and gossiping um, and, not, uh, and non-official informal sort of actors who might be other members of the embassy staff, women can play an important role in this. Uh, that's a huge part of diplomacy uh, in this time period as well. Thank you. Thank you for those insights. Uh, you've been extremely gracious. We've been talking for over an hour. So I, I think we should probably stop. I'd like to ask you, is there anything I've forgotten to ask or important points that you'd like to make or um, any thoughts you have about the fact that we're all sitting under quarantine and talking by computer is one of the few things we can actually 
do that's like our normal work? And uh, finally, would you like to mention your future projects? Uh, well, it is sort of interesting talking about uh, this under these uh, conditions, um, because uh, just from the context of, uh, of the Venetian diplomatic mission in, in, in Istanbul, health issues are a major sort of a concern for for the embassy and for the uh, the bylaws and the ambassadors. Um, outbreaks of plague are incredibly uh, common in Istanbul in this time period. And so the, the embassy uh, itself becomes kind of a refuge uh, during outbreaks of disease. And, and one of the really common sort of um, um, topics that the Venetian ambassadors raise, not so much maybe in the uh, the the reports like um, um, I've translated here, but in their dispatches, kind of uh, weekly, bi-weekly sort of uh, reports that they write back to Venice, voluminous uh, reports that they write back. They will often talk about the health and the disease outbreaks in the city and members of their own household who have gotten sick and perhaps died. And some of the, the bylaws and the ambassadors uh, die as well from disease. So there's a, a certain sort of interesting uh, parallel, I suppose, between the, between what we're talking about and, and the and living through ourselves uh, and the reality of, of, uh, of an overseas embassy um, like the Venetian one in Istanbul in this time period. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy we've been able to, to sort of sit down and have I think an enjoyable chat about uh, about uh, about our work, notwithstanding the terrible uh, disease and uh, repercussions of that uh, pandemic that are that are all around us. Um, I think we probably hit on everything that I would hit on. Again, I appreciate your interest in uh, in the work and, and the thoughtful uh, questions and conversation. Uh, about uh, the book. I hope it, uh, I'm happy it was interesting to you and hope that it will be useful to scholars and students uh, as well. Very um, much. I'm sure it will be very much. Um, so yeah, I think uh, that's probably all I would say. All right. Well, thank you. Um, and I see on, on your website, it says that your next book is going to be about food and food ways. Yeah. Right. And when will that come out? Do you think? Ah, well, that's always a hard question to ask a, a historian <laughs> and a writer, right? <laughs> in theory, I'm getting a lot of work done on it in the midst of, right. of being uh, being cloistered uh, in practice, maybe not as much as I would like. Uh, that that project's pretty well advanced. I would say that uh, I've written probably three quarters of it um, and published different bits and pieces of it in journals and collected volumes. So uh, some of what I was talking about in terms of, of gifts uh, and and banqueting and hosting people uh, is part of a chapter in that book on food and diplomacy and the way that food is used in uh, in Venetian diplomacy and and more broadly not just Venetian uh, in this time period. So I hope to get that wrapped up by the end of this year and shipped off to a publisher and maybe published by the end of next year. Who knows? That would be wonderful. And perhaps we can talk again about that. I'd love that. Thank you so much, Professor Dursteller, and uh, thank you uh, to our listeners, and that's that.